Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. The new season has begun, and it is time for a conclave. We've got Zelman with us, of course, the Davids with us, and Adam. We've all been rather busy over the summer. Uh, Zelman has been avoiding photographers in the Pacific Northwest. Adam has been spending most of his time with cherry pie and darn good coffee at the Double R Diner. And the Davids are in some sort of heated blood feud over who is the official word fitly David. I have been summering <laughs> at a Mediterranean villa, reading esoteric texts, and learning how to use a monocle. And we are all happy to be back here with you on this very special episode. Gentlemen, how are you? Very well, thank you. <laughs> uh, David Apple, how are you? I'm, I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to be mentioned first. I take that. That's a good sign. <laughs> David Bukes. Uh, you know, the alphabet did you some favors there, but that's about it. Yeah. So. <laughs> the, al- the, al- the alphabet, not the alphabet boys. Uh, Zelwyn. I'm doing well, Willie. We're just, I'm excited to get going here and, and see what this new season brings. And uh, we would like to remind our listeners out there that Aaron Upoff is alive, but is not able to be here at, on this episode. Zelwyn, we've got some new things coming up. Why don't you tell the folks at home uh, what to expect in the new season? Well, one of the things you're going to notice right away with this episode is that we have some new music uh, for our commercial breaks or whatever you want to call them. So look, looking forward to premiering that in this episode. Uh, we're also hoping to pick up some really great topics this coming season. I think we'll probably talk about those towards the end, but I'm I'm just excited for all of it. Well, it is a conclave, so we are taking listener questions, and we've got some really good ones. Some of them will eventually make their way into f- more full episodes. Um, we won't tackle all of them, you know, for the because of uh, issues of propriety, doxing, and time. So we will just uh, take them in turn. Uh, some of them will tackle a little bit longer than uh, others, but really good questions here. We love the word fitly nation. But where are my manners, guys? I need to know the weather. David, how's the weather in Paducah? Uh, weather in Paducah is hot and humid. I think I've been told, according to the weatherman, if you believe in his prophecies, he says that the humidity is going away soon. Um, but it's been every day, 95, 90% humidity. Kind of get used to it. Um, you go outside, you feel like you're swimming, and uh, you just buckle up and get used to it. I, I adopted the, the Zelwin motto. Um, uh, that's just how it goes. Bukes, Bukes is it any better exactly. in Minnesota? Was we don't have the humidity, not in the least. We they're saying that it's the driest summer since 1988 here in Minnesota. So we're all digging deeper wells, and the weeds are growing nice and tall, but the the garden is suffering. So it's a bit of a tough time in Minnesota. Uh, Adam, from your location, how's the weather? You don't have to reveal it, but you can give us a, a, a description. Yeah, hot, not at all humid, um, smoky and hazy. Very nice, but uh, hard to see blue sky most days. He is in the hollow earth, ladies and gentlemen. Basically. <laughs> we have found, we have found the gateway. the mastodons now. <laughs> uh, Zelwyn, how about in the uh, Dakotas? How are things in the plains? Well, I feel like I'm kind of shooting the gap here because I'm also extremely dry. We have one of our driest years on record, like say the worst drought since the 80s. And we're also still in the, the smoke path. So overcast, <laughs> gloomy. Nice. You get used to it's, it, right? Like it, you, are, you get used yeah, to it. Like it feels real good. It feels good. 
It was just, uh, well, in Illinois today, actually, just uh, rainy, and it's been hot, and then it's been rainy. So that's kind of what we've been what we've been going through. So here on the plains, and that'll also cover the Fort Wayne forecast, I suppose. So, gentlemen, shall we tackle some questions? Yeah, yeah let's, let's do it. dig in. All right, first up, um, this is one that people people think should take a lot of time, but it's really quite simple. Um, annihilationism. Uh, one of you all tell the folks at home what annihilationism is. Zillin, why don't you take it? <laughs> uh, annihilationism, I mean, it's something I don't think you ever really encounter in the wild, but it's it's just the idea that there would be an end to the torments, that uh, the end of the torments of hell, right? I mean, I think that's the, the basic definition of annihilationism. Sure. But I, I, I think it's kind of pretty easy to to disprove. I mean, Jesus says the worm dieth not, right? And he said it in God's glorious English too. So, <laughs> well, and, the, and you know, they're going to come back and go, but you're making it too simple. Yes, we are. <laughs> uh, because that's the way it is. Two places you go folks in the end. <laughs> and they last like forever. I could, yeah. Yeah. We could, we could tweet out some bumper sticker, you know, kind of comforting theology for you. But uh, if you don't, Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not looking not looking too good for you right now. Sad to say. Don't ever forget that. That is part of the <laughs> part of the gospel message is to believe on Jesus uh, or be damned. I don't know. Maybe I'm old fashioned. You know, well, you you were recently in your uh, uh, white suit preaching the gospel. So I mean, there's that too. Right. Some might even say you can't preach the gospel without a white suit. I don't know. I don't know. That that one's not true. Guy, Ordo guys, don't attack me. All right, but yeah, annihilationism, theologically untenable. Uh, there is a judgment at the end of days, and whichever way you are judged is an eternal pronouncement upon your head, either to glory in Christ, to salvation in Christ, or you're weighed and found wanting and cast into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And we could, if we wanted to, get into all these uh, copes trying to soften what hell is. But either way you cut it, hell, not a good place to be. Yep, so. I, would, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, next up, can one be a radical Lutheran and still be a confessional Lutheran? Yeah, I, I think the answer is no, simply because the confessions rely on something and presume its reality and force which radical Lutheranism does not. And uh, the place to go to see this is Gerhard Ferdi's doctoral dissertation called The Law Gospel Debate. It was published by Fortress in the 80s. So you can find it. It's still being printed. And that's where you see that the confessions rely upon scripture as obviously what we would now call in English theological terms, inerrant or infallible, inspired. And radical Lutheranism is an end run around the inerrancy or infallibility or the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. So that gets sourced in the law gospel debate out of 19th century German theology, but Ferdi's appropriating it as his own. So the structure that he is building around a certain law gospel dynamic is all built upon the idea that the really central thing in Lutheranism is this law gospel dynamic and not as the basic source for theology an inerrant word of God. Um, Ferdy, Ferdy's actually instrumental in getting inerrancy to be banished from 
Luther College when he's in the religion department there in Decorah, Iowa. So it's it's kind of simple. Um, that's not everything that I have to say, good or bad, about Gerhard Ferdi, but I do think that confessional Lutheranism is incompatible with quote radical Lutheranism for that reason. Yeah, and you know if we are if we're using those two terms, radical Lutheranism versus confessional Lutheranism, to frame it a different way would be to say that radical Lutheranism effectively denies the clear words of the confessions in certain articles. Therefore, by definition, it cannot be confessional, you know, to, to basically jettison chunks of the book of Concord, if we're framing it as confessional verses, which is another way also, as Adam is expertly pointed out is, is a way of saying radical Lutheranism versus biblical Lutheranism. Do you think it's fair to, I mean, why, why is radical? Well, let's, let's kind of define this a little bit, uh, Adam, uh, let's define, let's get a good working definition for radical Lutheranism. Yeah. Radical Lutheranism is, I believe, Ferdy's, Gerhard Ferdy's own coinage. He taught theology at Luther Seminary for a very long time, almost his whole career. And it means a certain uh, insight and appropriation of the word of God as dynamic and also the bondage of the will as fundamental for thinking about theology. Significantly, the two books that Ferdy rereads throughout his life are Karl Barth's interpretation of Romans, which is where he gets his understanding of the word of God, what that phrase means. It doesn't It doesn't mean the text of the Bible. And the second is a collected volume of Mad Libs. <laughs> second, the, the second, uh, yeah, something like that. The second is uh, On the Bondage of the Will by Luther. So he's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's re- well, it wasn't table talk. That would have been spot on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's On the Bondage of the Will. And it's really kind of a synthesis, I think, of a, uh, a neo-Orthodox understanding of the word of God, where it's not, can't be sort of nailed down, but is usually identified as the gospel strictly speaking, kind of melding that with Luther's theology on the bondage of the will and even applying bondage of the will to Christians, which is where I think it really conflicts with the formula of Concord, saying that Christians' wills are bound, which is a difference that if you ever, if you grew up in the ELCA, you you might have grown up saying, we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. That's actually excised from the Missouri Synod's appropriation of that right, because we can't actually say that a Christian is not in bondage to sin after his regeneration. Right. Which, which it, regeneration itself is a, is a word lost on that group, too. It's not a word used. It's a word that we need to use more often. We, we use a, uh, another form of it, the new man, but we, uh, we have so neutered the concept of the new man, arguably because of the influence of radical Lutheranism within our circles, even within confessional circles in we'll, um, we'll say the last 20 years. Yeah. Is it that in, in the, con- well, in the confessions, just so that you could see where the confessions talk about that, that distinction that you just made Adam, that the Christian's will is liberated. Is it, it's in the, it's in the formula. Is it article two or three? I think it's I think it's two, um, but I might be wrong on that. I don't have my book of Concord handy here, but that the that article is I think the best part of the of the whole book of Concord because they you know they go to great pains to talk about before conversion you are your will is a certain way, but then after conversion 
And that's the part that, you know, radical Lutherans and, and all Lutherans are usually very solid on. But then they also talk about what happens to the will in conversion. You actually, your will is converted. You are set free to, to do God's will. Right? You know, it's, it's something of a denial of the renewal of the mind. And therefore, it's almost an excuse to jettison certain parts of Scripture that you can't understand or that make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I'm fallen. These don't apply to me. Or they must be reframed in some kind of other term that's more palatable to this uh, to this concept. Yeah, I was thinking it, 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 one of the attractions of radical Lutheranism is how it simplifies preaching because you don't have to pay any attention to whom you are preaching. They're all the same, in the same boat all the time. No difference. Yeah. No discernment. Right. Yeah. Yep. Just hit A, B, points A, B, and C, and yeah, it's time for euchre time. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right, guys. Any other words about uh, radical Lutheranism versus confessional Lutheranism for now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that it comes it comes out in preaching, and it, I think it's much more widespread in preaching as a phenomenon. The presumption that regeneration is not real, that Formula of Concord Article Six on the third use doesn't say what it says. And this is a theme that Word Fitly touches on in many, many episodes. It's kind of a thread that really runs through the Word Fitly ethos, just trying to recover this idea that um, in Christ you really are a new creation and that that means something. It means something um, as far as the Christian life is concerned. And there are those who would look at us and say, you are not Lutheran because of that position, because the radical Lutheran, the radical Lutheran, excuse me, radical Lutherans have such a stranglehold on certain circles within conservative Lutheranism today. And maybe that's an episode down the road to kind of parse out what conservative Lutheranism looks like in maybe five big spheres, because that's what we have. Um, We have a big evangelical tent, a confessional tent over here, the radical Lutheran tent, which would still claim to be confessional, those sorts of things. I'm going to say tents because saying synods is a little bit too, uh, perhaps a bit too pointed, too provocative for episode one of the new season. <laughs> well, in a tent, there can actually be revival, but in a synod, I'm not sure it can happen. <laughs> There's your quote. Grab that one, folks. Put that on Twitter and gab for me, please. Which, by the way, should Word Fitly get on Gab? If we should get on Gab, let us know in the comments, folks. We'd love to hear from you. All right. Well, we will certainly talk more about radical Lutheranism down the road, folks. You can guarantee that. The next question uh, that we're not really going to tackle here, but we will eventually get to the Septuagint versus the Masoretic text. Might have to put that behind a paywall. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll didn't, get- didn't, didn't we kick the can down the road on that one last time, too? Yes. I mean, yes. The people want to know. It is in the works. It is in the works. Yeah. I'm just saying you've got two choices, right? An old and reliable translation used in the New Testament and a later corrupted anti messianic one. The choice is which way, Christian man? Which way? (laughs) I don't know. My will is bound. I'm not sure which way which way to choose here. (laughs) But I mean, just read the King James and you'll be fine. Listeners would like to know, uh, David Bukes, uh, what ratio of human to tech are you actually? Yeah, I feel like this is a this is a bit of a trap. I don't want to uncover any <laughs> secrets here, so um, I'll just let's just leave that open to speculation. Um, 
I think it's 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 best remains a mystery. W- will you do the episode on transhumanism? <laughs> uh, I'd prefer not to. I mean, I, the, I mean, I think that I think that I just am, I'm not in a position to reveal too many secrets. Okay, so. you enough. could you could do a you could use do a presentation on transhumanism at a pastors' conference, but it would just turn to a presentation on trans fats. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. This is all making me very uncomfortable, and I'd rather get back to animal husbandry because that's what we need to work on. Here. All right. So the next question uh, we can spend a little bit more time on what prevented the LCMS from having more than two seminaries in the way the ELCA has several. And one might also ask, why does today, why today does the LCMS have two seminaries? Who wants to handle that one? I don't know anything about that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Let's, let's try to answer it this way. Remember that while you've, typically had the two locations. Okay, we're going to generically say Fort Wayne and St. Louis. That has shifted over the years, right? Between like practical versus theological seminary. There's the whole Springfield thing. So our actually having two is sort of shifted and it's morphed over the years. Yeah. And But now we're basically, we basically have two completely separate entities. Right. That's what it's evolved into. And it's been that way before, but then it's been kind of an amalgam. That's really the, without going into a big, long episode on this. Is there one good reason why we have two, two that persist? We could possibly say theological and perhaps political reasons. Um, How it develops into the two are are somewhat related, but historically they have been more, the uh, curriculum and the students have been more closely intertwined decades ago. I would say that's that's fair, right, guys? But institutions are always going to seek after the preservation of the institution itself. So if you have two institutions that are working together, let's say you'll do two years here and then two years there, right, like a junior college, senior college, the institutions are going to eventually grow into their own things. This is naturally how it happens. And I think that's the most fair way to describe what has happened, is that the institutions were seeking to cement their places and there's nothing inherently wrong with that in and of itself. Um, but that's, that's what, that's what you have uh, parallel courses of development. And, and now we have the two and the two do have their differences. There's no denying that. I think to say that the two seminaries are not different would be, I don't know, a little bit blind. Uh, the emphases <laughs> are certainly different. The curricula are different. And but- so that's where we are. But maybe talking more on the ELCA side of things, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong on this, but maybe the reason why they have, what is it, 10? I think it's gone down since that, think, isn't it? I think they have eight. Yeah, because they down yeah, to they, eight. But, but my point... If you're listening point, to this episode in two years, it'll be less. <laughs> well, exactly. But my point is, is that I think a lot of that came from the fact that the ELCA is a product of mergers. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and so the institutions, like you say, they wanted to hold on to their identity. And there was a time when they could do that in the ELCA, but that's becoming increasingly less right. of, of the case. Yeah. But I mean, both LCMS seminaries predate the LCMS and they have always functioned along two different tracks the nature of those two different tracks has varied widely through Senate history. The current, let's say, trajectory, although its future destination is not clear, that is responsible for differences like in, I mean, who knows what's going to happen now, but like in the chapels in the past 20 years. 
that's a result of post Seminex, how Fort Wayne was positioned by Robert Preuss. But before, but for most of the institution's history, it was different because it was the place that you went if you weren't inside the system for making pastors in the Missouri Synod. So everybody else okay. went to Springfield. So, but the reason there's always been two is because they were both given to the Missouri Synod when the Synod formed in 1847. And the Missouri Synod is strangely not the result of a merger, unlike almost every other Lutheran church in America. So, yeah, we never took in a smaller synod and took it to seminary, did we? I mean, even we, in Argentina or Canada, did we? No, when, when we, we started those, those and they were districts, yeah, yeah, but we never, we didn't take them when, like, no. when we, yeah, no, we took in the English district, which had a college, and we took in yeah. the Slovaks, and they, they didn't have anything. And then we we so. founded the Black <laughs> Seminary at one point. We, at one point, we did have the Black Seminary. People forget yes. about that one. Yeah, in North Carolina, in North yeah. Carolina, yeah, and so. So yeah, so the history gets a little more complicated just because of how the the system operated and things right. like that. So, yeah. and nowadays it's just a question of whichever one you want to go to, and you know make that de- make that decision on your own. You're a man with agency, right? And I would I would say um, keep the seminaries for men. Okay, moving on. <laughs> All right, so uh, guys. Uh, what happens when a man disappears in the Pacific Northwest? Uh, that we can answer easily. There are portals. <laughs> I, I have been through them, and I found Zelwyn on the other side of them. <laughs> Smiling. I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> but, you, but you came but, back. But, I don't, this is what I don't understand. I'm speaking from inside one of the lodges. <laughs> Everywhere you step into, there is Zelwyn, and he is always blurry. But we're at our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. Listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz, David Butes, and David Apple answering your questions here on the Conclave. All right, a fun first segment, and now on to the next one. Zelwyn, why would anyone buy beef when bison is superior? See, now I take this question personally, <laughs> and not just because I am of the bison variety. Mostly because I, I, you know, grew up on beef. And while I will admit that, you know, a bison burger is a delicious thing. I mean, come on, guys. Beef is where it's at. I mean, if, if, you, if you disagree with me, come fight me in real life. I mean, I'll... I'll so true. 
<laughs> I'll, I'll take you on. And and Zolan, I'm going to throw another controversial thing out here. We're um, we're we're an anti uh, like uh, Satan's legume, the soybean podcast for the most part. And Agreed. like you got to you got to be careful about anti big. You know, got to be careful about big corn too, guys. But there's something about a cow with a little corn in his diet. He just tastes good. You know, they've 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 gaslit you on the grass fed a little bit. You got to get them fat. That's the biz- gotta- that's the biggest Aztec respecting cope I have ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I'm de- on this podcast right now. <laughs> Supplement. Point is, whatever you feed your cow, make sure he's fat. Is what we're saying. <laughs> See, this is my problem with bison. We, we want we want lean good. men and fat yeah. cattle. Exactly. Yeah, it's the only way. <laughs> yeah, David uh, Bukes, you've probably got some. You want to chime in here? I know that you. I agree heartily with everything you've said. <laughs> and uh, so, with your with your with your chivos, with your with your goats, uh, do you ever butcher them? Uh, the, the, that's in the works. We're going to have some pasture raised goats next year. So, if you'd like to, you know, give it a shot, come on up to Minnesota. We'll uh, do a, a blind taste test and have Zelwyn see if he can tell the difference. You and your closest twenty Somalis. Right? Are they? I was Adam beat me the punchline. Is do you butcher? Do you do you butcher halal, sir? Well, uh, I intend to do everything. Will your goats be served halal. on a uh, on a flatbread in the back of a midwestern uh, gas station? We don't use spices for, so, for reasons that I can't explain. <laughs> I was uh, I was traveling as I recently, and I, so you can't get gasoline now, except there's a TV screen on the pump. And it was advertising like halal Mediterranean food for truck drivers at the truck stop. And I want to know what happened to this country. That's what I want to know. See, you all knew that this is where this episode was going to go. I mean, this is this is where it always ends up, right? Yeah. The, the only Listen, thing you should hold the on. Only thing, yeah, go ahead. I'm just saying, you go to a truck stop. Of the things I can mention on this show that you can buy and should buy, <laughs> cash money, between a greasy burger and speed pills, uh, a, a falafel is not part of that. Okay? We are giving no medical advice on this right. podcast of any sort. We're not doctors. Why is there a Persian rug next to the, like, the, the, the locally produced honey? All things I want to know. And so you basically you need to go into the store, pick up your five hour energy and your greasy burger, and yeah, then and you, you know and you, and you get a vacuum packed seal of something called yellow jackets. I don't know what they are, but it gets you from Maysville to St. Louis just fine. You unload your Fritos and you make it back in time to see your kids play baseball Saturday morning before church on Sunday. That's what a truck stops for. Not not culture. <laughs> anyway, uh, now that we've uh, been deplatformed, um, let's talk a little bit. This is a very good question coming up here, or more of a request at first. Um, let's talk a little bit about encouraging, building up fellow pastors as they face heresy out there or difficult conversations or obstinate members. What can we say to pastors to admonish and encourage and, and build them up? David Apple, you've been, you've been, you've been quiet over there well you could say uh <laughs> um you can say you're not alone brother um everybody everybody's facing 
to some extent, everybody's facing these kinds of issues. Everybody's going through difficult stuff. And I think the the last year and a half has certainly accelerated a lot of strangeness. Now, in some ways, that has led to people just kind of leaving, disappearing. And so maybe you're not having to have as many of those difficult kind of questions. But is this question, is, are we talking specifically about like COVID stuff or is this just No, 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 general? no. COVID, COVID, COOF comes later. This is just in general pastors who feel discouraged in their calling um, because of the difficulties that they may come up with. What kind of advice or words of encouragement would you give them? I think the the advice is um, is just this is what it's this is what our ministries are going to be um, to some extent largely like we are not I was talking with our my men's bi- Bible breakfast group this morning and we were just talking about things awesome. shrink th- things getting smaller things contracting and uh, as things contract it's very easy to to say well it's you know it's very easy to become pessimistic about that and to lose lose hope. And so I think trying to build one another up in that we are building for long-term things. I know that's, that doesn't, that doesn't really help like the immediate, okay, I've got these five terrible situations and you're telling me, you know, work through it. And in 10 years, you'll see some kind of a a payoff. But I think that is part of the pastoral ministry that uh, you, you take lumps and you have to have long-term, long-term hope. You know, it seems like some guys go out and they're theologically, they understand that people are sinners and that people are difficult and you will have antagonists within your congregation or people that you're going to come up with, come up against that just don't like you no matter what you do, or people are going to be against you for your biblical faith. And sometimes they're going to be against you for things that aren't theological and they're not really that important. It just is what it is. Um, but it shouldn't surprise you the conflicts that you have if you understand the world for what it is. And it might help occasionally just to sort of step back and and remember that, yeah, the theology that I espouse actually has practical implications and answers for the world, and or rather explanations for the world. Men are treating you poorly because they are fallen, and they are corrupted, and they may actually be unregenerate, to to tie back into the previous thing. Um, But when fights come your way, I mean, think about, although we talk about agrarianism and we endorse it, the pastoral ministry is not a peaceful, bucolic kind of life. We can idealize the men in the prairie and think that they were just going around and telling people to come to church and converting them in mass and just immediately building these giant churches. But wherever they went, they had to fight. They had to fight against the elements. They had to fight against Indians. I don't know, but they also had to fight against biblical errors and people who hated the gospel and who hate the things of Christ. And you are called into a battle. God calls men into the fight and be ready to fight. And that's okay. I was going to say, but also, also be a human being. Remember that when I'm calling, when I'm, when I'm saying fight and contend, I am not saying yell at old lady Gertie uh, because she doesn't understand your chasuble that you brought out the first Sunday or something like that, you know, um, that's not the fight we're talking about. Um, you are actually fighting against powers in high places and to understand that it's a glorious thing to be called into, but God is calling, you know, soldiers and warriors. So put on the breastplate, okay? Take up the sword, take up your shield, 
be prepared through prayer and through study of the scriptures and be ready to rock and roll uh, when the Lord puts you where he will. Yeah, yeah I, that, I agree completely. And I think that knowing who you are in the fight is so important. I, there's this sense that as pastors, our responsibility is like pandering or, or standing in the corner and trying to get everybody to calm down and just get along. Where, when in fact, the presence of conflict uncovers the very things that we're fighting against, right? I mean, that's that's the forces of uh, of darkness revealing themselves, and and if that if that doesn't like if you can get that to energize you, you know, now you know your enemy. Yeah. Now you see the you see the task at hand, and to think about the opportunities ahead instead of like how, you know the discomfort of the situation. It, it is as much a matter of framing as anything. I think if you think of yourself as just like just always trying to keep the peace, then you're going to be miserable because it doesn't work that way. But if instead you're defending these people from the very things that they are revealing that threaten them, then get to work. You got to go for it. And then the other part of this question from the listener is, can we describe a church's desire to hold on to this idea that big programs, events, this sort of prepackaged approach to Christian education and spiritual growth will, will will solve all of our problems. Is it as simple as saying we perhaps saw it too easy or too, you know, too, uh, what, what do we want to say? Just easily digested solutions, or we thought that this would be, um, if you just follow step A, step B, step C, you'll, you'll achieve a certain result. Um, do you think that the previous generations who held on to this, the people who do that today, rather, um, do they actually believe that the programs are going to work? Or is it just kind of you get stuck in a rut? This is what we do. Go from program to program or event yeah. to event. Yeah, I, I think they do sincerely believe that they'll work. I mean, sometimes it's a lack of imagination. They don't know what else to do. But I think that often they do sincerely believe that programs of various kinds, boards, things like that will work because I think that a lot of Christians' presumptions about non-Christians are maybe 40 to 50 years behind where the non-Christians are. Mm -hmm. They sincerely sure. do not know what is going on with people, what's wrong with them, or that the reasons that they're not coming to church are a lot more complicated than that the Christians are insufficiently friendly or insufficiently understanding of why you know they're sleeping around or whatever the case might be. I think there's a presumption of sort of dormant Christianity that just has to be awakened by the right kind of appeal that a lot of Christians have about non-Christians. And I think that's that's why they're still looking for things like programs because they're relying on, oh, this kid was taken to Sunday school or whatever, and now he's got a couple kids, but he's not quite on board with everything, but we need to be understanding and tolerant. That kind of person may have existed in much greater numbers in like 1931 but but I think he barely exists anymore because if you are not inside the church, I think you are very, very far away spiritually in a way that was not the case for most Americans in 1931. But I, I don't think the church has really caught up with that yet. All right. And somewhat related to that, speaking of the church uh, catching up, should the church, uh, what would be, what should be the church's response to um, increasing COVID restrictions at home and abroad? Zelwyn, you want you've been quiet over there. Is this a Fed question? It's a little bit of a Fed question. I think this is entrapment. 
I'm not sure I can answer this question. <laughs> Without counsel. Right, right. Um, I think at this point, we have seen this thing for what it is now. I mean, there was a time when this all started that we weren't really sure what was happening, you know, and you could say that there was a time when, when things were just kind of, we were trying to figure out as we went along, but I mean, it's been what a year and a half at this point, if we're still wondering how to really deal with some of these restrictions and what it means to be faithful in the face of them, I, I don't know what you're going to do with that. You know, it's just the, we know the game plan now. <laughs> we know what, what we're there, what the goal is with many of these things. And I, I just, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm living in a part of the world where people just don't worry about this as much as some. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I, the the new things that are coming out, I mean, the masks and the um, shutdowns and stuff, I think we've got to just, I think the church, the church's position ought to be um, that we're not going to, we're not going to play pandemic anymore, right? We're not going to, we're not going to do that. That might shock some people, but I think that's the I think that's a position of strength and that's a position that uh, has has legitimate winning capability to it. The other things that are coming in now that like I've seen are like the vaccination mandates for employees and those I think the Missouri Synod has not historically taken a, a kind of stance on those things and so if if the question is like what the Missouri Synod ought to do I don't know. I don't know what the synod ought to do in that situation. I know what they've done is just kind of tried to stay out of it, which doesn't that doesn't really help anybody, does it? Like that, well, it's, your members aren't encouraged by that. They just have. It's just well, the church doesn't talk, talk about this, and so I guess I got to get the vaccine. Well, you know, I'm seeing pastors being rather divided on the the issue of of the shot, and it's a little bit troubling for me because. They'll, some pastors will come right out and say there's no religious reason not to take the vaccine. And then we'll just sleep like babies when it comes to people taking religious exemptions against Social Security. And and so this this disconnect as if as if as if the issue of abort, aborted parts used in at least one of the major vaccines wasn't a problem or in the testing phase of others wasn't at least somewhat of an ethical issue. There's also the issue of, um, you know, forcing people to inject something within their body, forcing people to, I don't know, put a mark on their hand or their forehead. I suppose you could say there's no religious reason to object to that on its face, too, if you wanted to. <laughs> but my goodness, you know, just to just to sort of take something without without researching. And I know at this point, everybody's going to tell me they've they've researched it. But no, you didn't. And 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 we need to also say that. Just be honest about it. In a lot of cases, it's very refreshing to me when someone, instead of saying, well, I got this for you. No. Tell me that you got it because you wanted to go to Florida. You want, you had tickets to Disneyland. And I would respect that much more. People wanted to get back to normal. They were spooked and conditioned. And they, and they were told, if you do this, you won't have to wear this. And you can get back to normal. And so a bunch of people lined up to take it. That is what really propelled a lot of people to do it. We can pretend 
that there were giant altruistic motives for it, but we know for many it was just simply wanting to get back to normal. And to be fair, that is perfectly understandable. People need to work. And when they are told that you're going to have your livelihood taken away, and the conservative response we've seen from conservative politicians is, well, good, you get fired for it, and then you go get a job somewhere else that won't require the vaccination. That's the free market approach to this. It's just not helpful to anyone. And our people are out there with sincere questions, and their consciences are burdened by this. So we have to take a very, I don't want to say delicate approach, but at least a nuanced approach to this, don't we? Or maybe I'm just a crazy person. It's true. But I think that's hard to do because we haven't really dealt with conscientious objection at all. Um, Adam with the Amish take coming in three, two, one. (laughs) In the strict sense of the term, like in terms of the Selective Service Act, theoretically, a Missouri Synod Lutheran could say with ample theological justification, I refuse to register for selective service because... I don't think that the United States has fought a legitimate just war in a very long time based on constitutional procedure. Now, he would get laughed at for that, but it could be a sincere objection and he'd probably actually be right. I I just, I don't think we're prepared to object to mainstream things because we haven't for so long. Of course, we were going to get blown down by uh, mandated vaccines. Of course we were. Um, I don't see how any other outcome could have happened because we're not prepared to articulate why we would be different from other people. So what do you think led to that? Is it the quiet? Is it the supposed quietism that we always uh, trot out when we want to be cute? Um, I don't know. I mean, though people bring up, you know, World War One and American flags in the chancel. I, I don't really know where <laughs> it came from, but um, it is a really deep desire not to be noticed. And that is really hard to do at this point, especially if you are unvaccinated and living in the wrong state. And so um, I, I, we're on a collision course here. People talk about shrinkage of you know churches. This is a really good example of how that's going to happen because we have folks who now believe in their consciences that what they've done is the right and the Christian thing. And other folks who realize, like you were saying, that their jobs were just on the line. And so their consciences are actually burdened by what they did. And then other people who believe in their consciences that they never could get vaccinated. So that is a collision course for a church. And I think that's that's where we're headed. That's where we are. It will become more and more public that that's where we're headed. Yeah. We really don't have a precedent for this historically on an issue that's even really close to this. As far as something that everybody would be, it's going to touch everybody, right? Any other medical right. issue would be a, a, a sort of a niche kind of thing. Right. But this right. is going to be touching on everyone in a way that the polio vaccine didn't. I mean, the polio vaccine touches everyone, but it's a very different medical issue. Right. And a very it different was, societal, because society doesn't shut down for polio. Yeah. Right. Nobody loses a job over polio. I mean, unless with, they get polio. With with selective service, our clergy and our seminarians were all diff, were all by nature of what they did exempt, and so it didn't become a crisis for our educated, let's say, caste in the Missouri Synod, in the same way that vaccination does. So it's a really interesting test case because during Vietnam, our guys whose dads were pipe fitters had to register, had no other option, 
but basically everyone in charge of any church or any church-wide entity in the Missouri Synod did not. And so it didn't really impinge upon their lives nearly so directly. There was an out. It's why seminary enrollment was enormous in like 1971. So <laughs> this is uh, this is something that I think is novel in the sense that it, it, it touches all of us. You know, Seminex as draft dodging is a meme that we have not dis- discussed. Yeah. Well, and I, that's a big part. That's a big part of it. We should um, should put that on a T-shirt. But we're up to break number two. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. back everyone this is a word fitly spoken taking your questions here on a new conclave the first question for this segment why are lutherans certain lutherans attracted to eastern orthodoxy who wants to take that one and don't make me do it just because i have the longest beard <laughs> it's because they haven't met you willie so they don't they didn't know that that aesthetic exists <laughs> in the missouri synod <laughs> well all right. Yeah. Well, 100% true. But, you know, I we want to think about this. And without, in our private conversations, you know, we have our pet theories that are 100% accurate, but we can't exactly reveal here. But if we keep it just to the theological, I think it comes down to a few things. Um, like the question, as it's phrased in Word Fitly Posting, is why would anyone want to leave Lutheranism in favor of Eastern Orthodoxy when? Eastern Orthodoxy has, a her- has heretical doctrines of God, original sin, justification, breathing exercises, and scripture. Okay, so you're already answering the question with the presupposition, with theological presuppositions. Those, by the time someone leaves, have probably been taken care of, or um, they believe that they will be taken care of once they convert. So if they have any scruples or whatever, that will all be taken care of in time through submission to the church and through submission to tradition. Eastern Orthodoxy is attractive to people who want more liturgical worship but cannot find it in a Lutheran church or we'll say an Anglican church. Some people take a couple roads before they before they swim uh, the Tiber. The Bosphorus, you mean. The, I'm sorry, did I say the Tiber? Sorry. Well, yeah. that's okay. We'll say four steps. They try that, and then, <laughs> then they try Anglicanism, and then they go to the Pope. They really can't handle the Pope. They still want to be a little bit Protestant, so boom, Eastern Orthodoxy. There you go. You still get to reject the Pope. Um, but I, I would be clear here that a lot of times when people say they want the liturgy or they're saying they want historic worship, they want to be connected to the worship of the ancient church. They want authenticity and they see in the Orthodox church authenticity. And then they're in a very active church life with a lot of discipline and a lot of extra services. We'll say things like that, that are attractive to people. You know, I think the way, if you want to keep people 
in Lutheranism is to not just say, well, they've got a her- orthodoxy as heretical ideas. You don't want to go there. I think you need to present them with a Christianity that is active. You cannot read your way to salvation, confessions of St. Augustine aside. With the whole take up and read thing with Augustine, what happens? He takes up, he reads, not in orgies, not in drunkenness. He is converted and begins a life that is dedicated to God. If we can give people a Christianity that is vigorous, that is strenuous, that gives them something to strive for, namely that crown at the end, to admonish them and encourage them to run the race and to teach them the Christian practices and disciplines necessary for that, then I think we would satisfy some of the people who are going after these these other traditions. And I know that people right now are a little bit uh, a little bit nervous with what I said. We are justified by faith alone in Christ, of course, but Christ calls us into a faith that is active. It is not a faith that is merely academic. You must be in prayer. You must be in the divine service hearing the word. Okay, You must be disciplining yourself as a Christian as you are called to do. And that discipline comes about you know, through much more natural ways, too. Um, learning to be a Christian father, learning to be a Christian wife, a Christian husband, a Christian son, for example. All of that that we go through, if we can see it as a spiritual exercise, for lack of a better word there, if we can see it as part of the Christian life into which God has called us, we are given that vigorous faith that people are looking for. If we can be Lutherans, holding on to the traditions handed down to us liturgically and theologically, then we do have um, the historic significance there that may well satisfy some people. But if people see a Lutheranism embracing modern error and modern practices and jettisoning everything that our forefathers held dear, then of course they'll be, you know, led off to other pastures. That shouldn't surprise us. I think as we talk to people who are going after other theologies, you want to be patient with them and be willing to have the long conversations with your friends who are doing that and to have patient conversations with one another and honest conversations with one another. And at the end of the day, some people just want robes and incense. That's also true. I, I realize that that's true as well, but you know, can we, can we offer them, can we offer them a, a Lutheranism that, that is better? And, and I would, I would say that we can guys, other, other comments there. So are you unironically endorsing muscular Christianity? 100%. Yes. <laughs> but I think, I think you do need that, right? Um, people, people suffer spiritually as a result of, we'll say physical weakness. Okay. What does Paul say? I discipline my body. So you need to discipline yourself. The body and the soul are connected, right? You can't, you don't need to separate those two and they affect each other. And so, yeah, you do need to, we we run into kind of a prosperity gospel charismatic kind of thing in Lutheranism sometimes where we say, doesn't matter what I eat, doesn't matter what I do. It's an old maggot sack, right? And it's all about enjoying my, my first article gifts right now, rather than participating in the Christian life into which we are called. 
Willie's out here putting the uh, the Christian back in YMCA, basically is what, <laughs> what he's saying here. So, <laughs> Well, I've already got the mustache. Uh, <laughs> well, guys, you, you were being awfully quiet over there. I think the question presumes that people are in some sense actually explicitly theologically motivated. And I think that that overestimates people's own capacity to explain why they do the things that they do and why they are attracted to Eastern Orthodoxy and why they're not. And I think the reason for its popularity since like roughly the 1970s, especially among people who grew up in things that were pretty firmly Protestant in doctrine on basics like the Bible, which is only questionably God's word and subject to reinterpretation at any time by the church and Eastern Orthodoxy, among other things, is for like complex cultural reasons of abandoning what they think is empty or whatever. They may be attracted to Lutheranism for the wrong reason and may not even understand that they were because they thought they were converting for the doctrine, they learned to mouth the right slogans, but all along they right. really were after something deeper than slogans. Right. <clears throat> Absolutely. Well said. Well, Adam, while we've got you here, um, so I don't have to keep talking, can you compare briefly the New American Standard Bible 2020 and the Legacy Standard Bible? Uh, the former is not the Bible. The latter is the Bible in English. So that's <laughs> that's the comparison. <laughs> Um, any any translation that's gone gender neutral is capitulating to feminism and is no longer actually simply trying to translate the Bible from the original languages into the, the target language. So NASB 2020 has capitulated and therefore it doesn't really need to be read by Christians. But if you got a 95, you're still cool. So yeah, keep, 90, on, keep, keep on keeping 90, on. 95 is, is just fine. Right. Um, okay. Another one that, that, that could probably be its whole episode, but we're going to, we're going to take pretty briefly here. The Athanasian creed has a, a rather detailed list of things that you must believe to be saved. Many Christian bodies really deviate from the Trinitarian pronouncement in the Athanasian creed. And yet we still accept their baptism, still accept them as Trinitarian. What do? How do we? How do we deal with that? How do we rectify that? I mean, I, I'll, I'll let's. I'll baptize a Baptist if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> I think the distinction is between something produced in a council for the purposes of clarifying what needs to be taught in the churches versus what is actually capable of articulation by someone who simply goes to a church that professes the Trinity and is reading the Bible and doesn't know a whole lot else, right? So um, to understand what you're saying in the, in the Athanasian Creed and then to reject it, yes, that would incur condemnation. But to not really understand what the words mean or never even have heard of it, which would be the vast majority of Christians <laughs> right, right. throughout time and space. Yeah, including um, Christians at the time that it was adopted. <laughs> right. Who didn't happen to live in, you know, Spain. Um, <laughs> I know. Or wherever it's from. That, you know, that that's something else. So this is a this is something that you could ask about practically any of the creeds or confessions. Um, because lots of people could profess the content if it were explained to them and say, yes, that, that is what I believe, or you've clarified what I believe for me. 
versus somebody right. who who understands but then rejects what right. he knows to be true. Yeah. Very good answer. All right, guys. So we're heading up toward the uh, the end of the segment. So a few quick questions here. One must-read biography of choice. Who's got a must-read biography they'd like to recommend? I haven't read a biography in a long time. Besides Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas. Zellin, insert sad trumpet noise. Zellin acts like he doesn't have an answer. Then we, we know yeah, that he's, he's pulling a-, a book off of his <laughs> shelf right now. It's true. One book, and I, I know that Willie would probably sec, uh, second he's his gonna, recommendation. He's going to take my answer right now. It's going to happen. I'm totally going to take your answer because it's right here. But um, the biography of J.C. Uh, Ryle, uh, Prepared to Stand Alone by uh, Ian Murray, is an excellent biography of a very uh, wonderful bishop in England. I mean, if you don't know who J.C. Ryle is, you need to know who he is. If only because he is a man who spoke in a way that was clear to the people, um, especially to the working class of his day, and he wrote in a very, a very clear and a very forceful manner. I mean, he's he is a man that even we as Lutherans uh, should be should be aware of, and maybe should even read to some degree. So, you'd agree with that, wouldn't you, Willie? Yeah, that's what I was going to go with. Uh, prepared to stand alone. Yeah, a very good one. Uh, his story is great. He is reformed, so settle down there. Uh, but it is it is worth a read. His story is good, and um, you know Ian Murray. Come on, he he writes some good stuff. Also, that two volume uh, work on the Covenanters from uh, Banner of Truth is also good, but not quite a biography, more of a history, if you want. So, well, we've officially alienated all signs of Lutheranism well, with here, our. I'll, I'll save you. There's a book called Martin Luther, a Man Who Changed the World. <laughs> It's a kid's book. <laughs> just, it's a great biography. Uh, my recommendation was a kid's a kid's version biography of Theodore Roosevelt. So I mean, I don't know. Take your pick, Martin Luther or Teddy Roosevelt. But. And then you know what? I'm also going to recommend like uh, that Devil Forest, the life of uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. While we're here, that's a pretty good one. Check that one out uh, if you if if you want to. And then that new Caesar biography is really good too. I just can't think of the uh, the author off the top of my head. It's sitting over on the shelf there, but I can't quite make out the name on there. But that one is good. All right, and then related to that is um, a listener would like fiction recommendations, classic or contemporary. What's the? Uh, I I just read the first volume of Dune, and I enjoyed it. Are you guys Dune fans? I started once. I never did get finished with it, but. <laughs> <laughs> Did you enjoy Herbert's work there? Or? Oh man, I couldn't put it down. I enjoyed huh. it. Well, what, what did you like about it? Well, it's uh, it's a it's it's there's action. There's lots of action. I also like I like the sci-fi genre, so I enjoyed that <laughs> myself. Well, I have to give my I'll give my two obligatory um, <clears throat> sci-fi recommendations: a Canticle for Labowitz and b Starship Troopers. My True politics story. are somewhere between both of those books. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it up to the listener to decide which direction. And uh, so, so those are good. Um, I read Loris recently. That's a good one about a, a Russian folk healer who has a crisis of faith. It's actually a pretty good modern work of fiction if you're going to do that. Um, things like Brothers Karamazov, of course. Zelwin uh, is recommending all of Zane Grey and Louis L'Amour, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, unironically. Yeah. <laughs> as far as classic stuff, if you're not memorizing the Iliad, what are you doing with your life? And then um, what are some other classics? Which classics is a very broad category. Would you guys recommend? David Bukes, you're, you're, you're into Mark Twain. What, what do you recommend? <laughs> I was just thinking about a, a time when I really enjoyed Graham Greene. I don't know if I would enjoy him anymore, but The Power and the Glory, that was a good book. It was very dark. Very dark yeah, well, yeah that's way too depressing. Yeah. So I don't think I yeah. can re- recommend it. But when the English leave England, they get extremely depressive. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's really um, Adam and E. Brett uh, Easton Ellis. You want us to uh, <laughs> to read? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, if you've seen the movie, you need to read American Psycho. Um, two others uh, that I in- have enjoyed recently is Wallace Stegner, who writes about the West. It's not exactly a western, but it's always in the West. The Big Rock Candy Mountain and Angle of Repose are both fantastic novels. And then um, the poet Robinson Jeffers, like Jefferson, but without the O-N, wrote epic poetry in 20th century America. So, Hey, there you go. So there's the, your uh, reading list, Word Fitly Nation. The, All uh, right. Yeah, go ahead. The, I was say, the only, the only uh, fiction that I've re- read really recently um, would be Mallory's um, La Morte Arthur. Uh, so reading the uh, the Arthur cycle, which what, I think is fiction. What? Come on, yeah, that's exactly. not fiction. <laughs> yeah, you, you, Take yeah, those words notice, out of your mouth, either. Yeah, yeah, you'll notice. You notice we didn't we we didn't mention Lord of the Rings for a reason. <laughs> well, you just did. Thanks, Willie. <laughs> but no, I, I I really enjoyed the uh, the Arthur cycle, and I think that's something that uh, everyone should at least dig into a little bit. Maybe not the Tristan sections in it. That was that was a little dry, but. But beyond that, no, I mean, it's good stuff. Someone right. doesn't like all that kissy stuff. So. <laughs> no, I don't I don't like knights sitting around naked in the forest <laughs> lamenting the fact that their, you know, their love has left them. So the, the forest is for you. That's right. Um, all right, guys. Proper couple, clothing. <laughs> a proper hide. A uh, couple minutes left here. Let's talk a little bit about what we are going to talk about in upcoming episodes. Adam, you've got one coming up here, I think. Yeah, we're going to do Alfred Raywinkle, who, if people know him, it's probably through his book, The Flood, or as uh, the only Missouri Synod pastor honest enough to admit that he practiced birth control and why. So it should be fun. He had a lot to say about a lot of things and was a really beautiful writer. So I think I think the listeners will enjoy. An interesting life story, too, and good on communism. <laughs> Very <You know>? good <laughs> on communism and uh, foreign entanglements and, and lots of things. Just uh, not, not so much not, on... Not so good on one big thing, yeah. That's right, yeah. Appled and Heidi, I believe uh, Revelation is going to continue. Is that correct? <laughs> Yeah, that's the plan. We'll keep uh, we'll keep trudging along. We we thought the world was gonna come to an end, and it didn't. So that's that's changed the way I view the book. So we'll have to we'll have to reinterpret everything. <laughs> well, I was all ready for UFO two until the disclosure hearings were a big pile of nothing. So yeah, kind of a letdown, really. Yeah, I know. So we'll get some spoop in there too. Don't worry, folks. We've got lots of good stuff coming up here this season on A Word Fitly Spoken. This has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelman Heidi, Adam Koontz, David Appled, and David Bukes. God love you, and God bless.